The sermon text this morning is 1 Peter 2, verses 18 through 25. Servants, be subject to your masters with all respect, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the unjust. For this is a gracious thing. When mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. For what credit is it if when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure? But if when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his footsteps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. For you were straying like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. This morning, Tom asked me to answer the question, how does biblical counseling fit within the life of the church? I hope I can provide uh, some clarity for us today. My, my title is Biblical Counseling, uh, the Pastor of Counseling, so hopefully I can be helpful here. If you've heard me teach in any adult education classrooms or here in any family meetings, you've heard this before, but it, it bears repeating. Biblical counseling is one facet, it is one part of discipleship. Biblical counseling helps us to become more like Christ. Therefore, the way that we see uh, biblical counseling here at Christ Covenant Church is as one of the means of grace that God has given to us. Uh, means of grace are ways that, that God works in and through his people to make us more like his son. So this morning, we're gathered together for, uh, for, for worship, to hear the word of God preached. Uh, you, you spend time reading God's word at your home. You, you pray with your family. You're hopefully joining together with other brothers and sisters, having intentional conversations in your lives. All of these things are used by God to make us more like his son. Biblical counseling is an intentional relationship within the, within the context of crisis and suffering that leads us to become more like Christ. Therefore, because biblical counseling is a part of discipleship, just like hearing the word this morning, the call that you will hear from the pulpit this morning is the same call that you would hear in my office or hopefully sitting across from a brother or sister having coffee talking about your lives. That call is the same. And this morning from the text that Emily read for us, Peter's call is to faithfulness even in the midst of suffering. Faithfulness, even in the midst of suffering. Before we get there, I want to give you one other kind of uh, facet of biblical counseling, one of the ways that, that we understand counseling here in the church. Some of you may have experience with, with counseling that's more, um, it's a lot of stop it. It, it. It's a lot of don't do that thing anymore. Maybe it's stop being angry with your spouse. Maybe it's stop being anxious. Um, last night, I, I asked Emily to stop sneezing. Um, so we, we recognize, though, that we recognize uh, that that kind of counseling, that, that just stop it, it's not that simple. For those of us who are struggling with physical pain or anxiety or frustration, th those things 
you can't just tell someone to stop it. So biblical counseling and, and God's word sees us a little bit differently. God's word sees us as sinners, as sufferers, and as saints, all at the same time. We are all three of these things. We are sinners who need to repent and call out to God for mercy. We are sufferers, sufferers who are comforted by the gospel of Jesus Christ. We're sufferers who can call out to a God who hears us, and we are saints. We are people who have been made new. We're new creations, and by grace-driven effort, we strive to become more like Christ each and every day. Biblical counseling, the, the counseling that we do in our church, sees us as sinners, sufferers, and saints all at the same time because Scripture sees us that way. So this morning, we're going to be talking about a passage that deals largely with suffering. How do we engage How do we engage in the midst of suffering? How am I supposed to, to live faithfully like Peter calls us to? What does this look like? Suffering is a universal human experience. We've, we've all, we all have tasted suffering. It might, look, it might look different for you than it looks for me, than your neighbor next to you, but God's word speaks to you even in the midst of your suffering. I want to look at that today. I'm going to give you my three points all up front. First point is a call to faithfulness. Peter calls us to faithfulness in the midst of suffering. Even when it's hard, even though this is countercultural, he calls us to faithfulness. Second, there are the characteristics of that call. Peter describes what does this look like, and he, he tells us suffering faithfully, righteously, patiently enduring in the midst of suffering, that looks like Jesus, and we follow him. And then my third point is the catalyst. And, and that's not simply a, a word that starts with C, but I, we, I really mean that, that a catalyst, that the gospel is the catalyst that makes it possible for us to suffer like Christ. The gospel is the catalyst that makes it possible for us to suffer like Christ. So our passage today, chapter, uh, 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 18 through 25, these verses are, are Peter writing. He's giving instructions to slaves and servants who they're being mistreated. They're being treated poorly, and he wants to give them instruction. And this section is, is one application of the big idea in this whole passage. It, that, that big idea is found in verses 11 and 12, where Peter says, live honorably among the Gentiles, Live honorably among the Gentiles so that they may glorify God on the day of visitation. Live honorably among the Gentiles so that they may glorify God on the day of visitation. Therefore, the call to faithfulness, even in the midst of suffering, is one of the ways that, that we're different. It's, it's one of the ways that, that we should be different as followers of Christ. While Peter is talking to slaves and servants in this, uh, this small section, he also expands that to really his whole audience is suffering. In uh, chapter 1, verse 6, Peter addresses the various sorrows, the various trials that his whole audience is facing. They've become a new creation. They're a new people, and they're no longer doing the things they used to. They're no longer uh, going to, to the drinking parties and the orgies that, that were common in their day. They used to do those things, but no longer because they're a new creation. So while Peter's talking to slaves and servants in 18 to 25, he also expands this in 19 to others who are suffering. Everyone in Peter's context is suffering just like you and I. We all have hard stuff. So take a look with, take a look at, with me uh, at, at verse 18. Let me read that for us. Servants, be subject to your masters with all respect, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the unjust. 
Peter's call is to faithfulness, even when we're being treated unjustly, even when we're being treated unfairly, even when we're suffering. That's my first point, that Peter has called us to faithfulness. And this call is countercultural. It, it doesn't make sense. It's easy to love someone who has first loved us. It's more difficult to love someone who's a difficult person. It's even more difficult to love someone who is unfair, who treats you poorly, who hates you. That's the call that Peter gives in this context. This countercultural call demonstrates, it's back to verses 11 and 12. How will the Gentiles know? How will they know that we're different? How will they glorify Christ? Because we're living honorably among them, even though this is a countercultural call. I work here at the church, and it's a blessing uh, to come to work. Um, I have a pretty good boss and, and bosses. Um, Tom and the elders, they consistently point me to Christ, and it's easy to come to work here. It's easy to, to minister alongside you, my brothers and sisters. But I've had some bosses that um, weren't as kind. They weren't as loving. They weren't pointing me to Christ. They were, in fact, cruel and unfair and, and sometimes even inappropriate. It was harder for me to be faithful to the call that Peter has given me. It was harder for me to love those bosses well, and I struggled. But that's the call. That's the call that we strive for, to be countercultural so that Christ may be glorified. This passage largely is about the how do we suffer, how are we called to suffer uh, in, in this section. But in 19 to 20, Peter gives us a glimpse of the why. He gives us a glimpse of, of part of the reason that his audience is suffering in this way. There's a threefold parallelism here, but I'm going to tell you the, the main point of verses 19 and 20. Peter says that God approves of your righteous endurance in the midst of suffering. God approves when you are faithful, even though you are suffering. That's huge. God approves. And, and let me prove that to you. Let's read verse 19. For this is a gracious thing when mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. That first phrase, for this is a gracious thing, is kind of confusing in English. Um, in Greek, it's only three words. If we were to roughly translate it, it would be simply for this grace. So, Scholars have tried to understand what's going on here. And while grace, the word charis, could be interpreted, uh, could be translated as, as just grace, uh, it could also be translated as favor. So in this context, it's not you have done something that's gracious and kind and nice. Wow, that was such a nice thing that you did there. But the focus that Peter's trying to point us to is that in God's sight, we are going to be favored. Our response to suffering, faithfulness, in the midst of suffering, is favored by God. This is an incredible truth. In verse 20, he gives the other two pieces of parallelism. He gives the negative. Uh, he says that suffering, suffering as punishment is not approved by God. And then again in, in verse 20, he says suffering that, that is righteous is approved by God. And the suffering that is not approved by God, if it's, it's kind of a consequence of sin is the idea. So if you uh, steal a bunch of stuff from your job and, and then you get canned and then you say, but look, at God is approving of my suffering, the hardship that I'm now enduring. Peter's saying, that's not the point. You're, you're bearing the consequences of your sin. This is different than, than you suffering 
righteously, righteously enduring in the midst of suffering. That's a different scenario. So Peter's trying to repeat this three times here to really drive home his point. He really wants it to be clear to his audience. The goal is, in, in the whole passage, is not giving you a why, and, and, but he does tell us that God approves of your suffering. One note before we move on. This is not talking about spousal abuse. This is not talking about abuse of your, your children. Uh, this is not talking about... Um, physical harm that may come from an unfair, unjust, and evil boss or person in your life. If that is happening to you, by God's grace, we have structures in in the United States to to protect you. I would encourage you to call the police and speak to someone, either an elder or a staff member here at our church, and we will make sure that we can get you to safety. God cares about your safety. God cares about your physical well-being. Please speak to someone if that describes you. So in this context, Peter is giving us one facet, one snippet, one picture of why, are his, why is his audience suffering. In this context, he says that, that you're, you, God approves of you when you righteously, faithfully endure in the midst of suffering. But scripture tells us other things too. We have other, other facets of why do we suffer. Let me give you a few. These are in my notes. I can send them to you if you'd like them. One of the ways that, that scripture talks about suffering, why are we suffering, is that uh, suffering proves the genuineness of our faith. You really do belong to Christ as you suffer, yet you persevere. Suffering also galvanizes our faith. It makes us more like Christ. We become more and more conformed into the image of Christ through suffering. Sometimes we don't get the why. I'm thinking of maybe Job 38, and that suffering is mysterious, but God is still glorified. Suffering is mysterious, yet God is glorified in the midst of that. And we say, God, help us to trust you even when we don't understand. I would encourage you to continue to explore God's word. Maybe you're not in a, in a deep pit of suffering right now, but I promise you, you will be. We will all face suffering. And as we renew our minds, as we renew our hearts, we'll begin to think differently and approach the issues of suffering differently. One of the ways that I've seen that is in a family that I've been humbled and honored to walk alongside over the past two months for the Jordans and the Mercers and the Robertsons as they care for Anna Caroline who was able to come home last Thursday by God's grace. I see Tom pretty much every day and, and over the past two months I've heard him say this a couple times when talking about suffering, when thinking about the suffering that that he and his family is enduring, he has said to me, we need this. We need this. Suffering is a unique tool in God's tool belt, and he is using it for a variety of purposes. Sometimes we don't know what they are, but we know that God is glorified in the midst of that suffering, and we can hold on to the fact that we need this because God is sovereign. God is in control. In verse, in verse 19, Peter says, when you're mindful of God, we recognize that God is sovereign and that we need this. He is working in and through us, even in the midst of suffering. And as we respond with righteousness and faithfulness, God is at work. For those in this room who don't know Christ, 
I would ask you, what's the purpose of suffering? Is, is there any purpose in suffering? Why do these hard things happen in the world? If there is no purpose, if they're just random acts, then, then we should really avoid them at all costs. But it seems that inherently, as humans, we recognize that suffering has a purpose. Suffering has meaning. When I'm on my bike climbing up Raven Ridge doing a four-minute, all-out, high-intensity interval, I, I trust that I'm going to get stronger by doing that. Um, I better be getting stronger when I do that. Because um, it's, it's really, it really hurts. It's, a lot, it's hard. But my coach said, go ride up this hill. And I believed him that this, this, is, this is going to make me stronger by doing this. But by God's grace, we know more than simply Kelly Clarkson theology. We have more than simply what doesn't kill me makes me stronger. What doesn't kill me glorifies God. Suffering in my life makes me more like his son. Suffering in my life proves that I am, in fact, a Christian. Scripture gives us these answers, and I would encourage you to continue to search his word Try to understand what does God's word, what does he tell us about suffering? Before we move on to the characteristics, the, uh, the, the how are we called to suffer faithfully, what's that look like? I want to talk about slavery for a minute. This passage is addressed to slaves and servants in the Greco-Roman world. Tom, last year when he preached through this, he did a great job of highlighting some of the differences uh, between Greco-Roman slavery and probably the slavery that, that, that you and I are thinking of. Um, for most of us, we're thinking about slavery in the American South. There are some pretty significant differences there that, that you don't see the, the racial subjugation in the same sense. There, there are some other things that I encourage you to, to listen to his sermon from last year to, to get more info. But there's one thing that I want to point out. Some people have said, well, why didn't Peter just renounce slavery? Why did he say this is a terrible, terrible thing? And there are some differences. We're not talking about being an abolitionist in, in the 19th century. Um, but why didn't Peter like, say this is wrong? Treating slaves like this is wrong. I think part of it is Peter's primarily addressing, he's primarily addressing slaves and servants. The early church was made up of more slaves and servants than there were uh, slave masters. So he's talking to these people who are are the, the lesser unit in this, in this pairing. They're the ones who are subject to the authority of the other. But here's the thing. I think Peter does totally undercut and totally overturn the society, the, the social structure that makes slavery an acceptable thing in the Greco-Roman world. In the next verse, we're about to see that Peter connects slaves and servants to Jesus Christ. In the Greco-Roman world, it paid to be the dude on the top. You wanted to be the emperor or a government official or uh, some dude with some power. It was better to be a man than it was to be a child. Men had more authority in, in that context, in that, in that society. In our context, if, if you're attractive, if you've got lots of money and you're famous, that's the bee's knees right there. But Jesus doesn't identify with that person. He doesn't identify with the emperor. He identifies with the slave and the servant. Jesus Christ, well, Peter, by identifying Christ with him, gives dignity to that person on the lowest rung of the societal ladder. It's not right to mistreat, to poorly treat that, that, that slave or servant in the Greco-Roman world because they're created in the image of God. Christ came and took the form of a servant. These are human beings, and we should not treat them like that. So I do think while Peter doesn't say, stop it to slavery. He does say that, that this practice of, of devaluing people 
is anti-biblical. It's contrary to the way that God created us. I would love to tell you more about, about slavery. I have more in my notes. If you'd like them, I can send those as well. But let's move to the second point. And this is the characteristics. How are we called to suffer faithfully? What does that look like? What, what does it look like when you get that phone call that a loved one is sick? That that loved one has died? What do you do when, when your spouse gets mad at you and sins against you? What do you do when you're anxious about how do I respond to my child? What if, what if they get mad? How am I going to do this well? I think Peter tells us. Read with me in verse 21. For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. So what does it look like? What are the characteristics? First, it looks like, it looks like following Jesus. So we're called to suffer like Jesus. That's the title of, of this sermon today. That's what Peter has called us to, suffering like Jesus. But even more, he gives us three concrete ways that Jesus suffered. Three concrete ways that Christ responded faithfully, even in the midst of suffering. That's in verses 22 and 23. And I want to give those to you, those three subpoints. Verse 22 He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. Scholars have concluded that this section, 21 through 25, is kind of walking along the, the Passion Week of Jesus. It's walking along uh, the last week before he, he dies. And verse 22, Christ, uh, the, the point here is that Christ is, is purity. He is purity in speech. That's my first sub-point there. Purity in speech is one of the ways that we're called to be faithful when we suffer. Purity in speech. So what scholars think is they're, they're probably pointing to Christ and, and his trial before the Sanhedrin. So Christ, after he's arrested and betrayed by Judas, appears before this small informal council of, of Jewish leaders who want to convict him of blasphemy so that they can send him to Pilate to get him killed. Jesus is sitting before them and he remains silent, blameless in his speech as witnesses come up and, and, and speak falsehoods against him. They lie about what Jesus has done. But Christ does not, he, he doesn't flip out. He doesn't, he doesn't, Christ is blameless in his speech. So even though Jesus Christ is sitting before this unethical, uh, the, the way they did it was unethical, all of it was, uh, it was a kangaroo court, yet Christ remains blameless in his speech. I don't know about you, but I, I'm, I'm more of a cold anger guy. If, if I get upset, I'm, I'm going to be more of a cold shoulder guy than a, a loud outburst guy. Um, some of you probably know that experience. Um, but when I'm suffering, I might not have an angry outburst that, that, that turns my speech into to sin, but I'm often grumbling and complaining and venting. Look at how hard my life is. Woe is me. Um, a previous pastor would have called, uh, I, I was throwing a pity party for myself. Um, I would complain and I would grumble. If that describes you, I want to encourage you in two ways this morning, that if your speech is, is, is turning quickly to sin because you're grumbling and complaining about the situation that you are facing, the hardships that you're dealing with, I'd encourage you to do two things. The first is speak to the God who cares 
who hears and can do something about it. Speak to the God who cares, who hears, and can do something about it. It's pretty easy to come home and complain to Emily or complain to a coworker or, or a friend. But I would encourage you to, to, to first speak to God and then seek wise counsel. Then speak to your spouse about the hard things that are going on in your life. That's legitimate, but there's a fine line, a pretty clear line maybe, between grumbling and complaining and speaking redemptively about your struggle. And here's the second thing that I'm going to tell you. After you've spoken to God, called out to him, asked him for help and for deliverance, and trust, and faith, I would encourage you, like we talked about previously, to search God's word and what God's word says about scripture. Allow your speech to be more and more conformed into what God's word says about your situation than about your grumbling or complaining. Earlier we talked about how suffering makes us more like Christ. It proves that we are Christians. It's, it's approved by God. It, we need this. I would encourage you to, to let your speech be transformed by, by the renewing of your minds so that it reflects these truths from Scripture rather than the, the woe is me, everything is awful. Speak to God, cry out to him like David in the Psalms, but also renew your mind by the truth of God's word that he teaches us about suffering. So first, purity of speech. That's, that's how Jesus shows us what it looks like to suffer faithfully. The next point is in 23. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten. The second point is meekness, not retaliation. Meekness, not retaliation. So I was sharing uh, my notes at the staff this week and, and asking them for, for help and um, the text is pretty clear that, that what Jesus does is he doesn't retaliate. It's a negative response. Don't do this. And I was trying to put this in like a positive, like, what, so if they're not doing that, what should they do? And I was meeting with um, Daniel and, and Nick and Misael, and, and Nick had an idea that I thought was really good. He said, meekness. And I was like, <laughs> I was like all right, Nick, you're going to have to give me more. Like, can you help me define that? And, and he's like, it's like a, a black stallion in a, in a battlefield. It's, it's, it's power under control. And he's absolutely right. Meekness is, is how Jesus describes himself. It's Jesus has power as he sits before the Sanhedrin and they throw accusations at him, but he is under control. That battlefield, the, the, the black stallion on the battlefield analogy, he had to explain that to me, but it's brilliant that black stallion is, is covered in muscle. It's a powerful animal, and chaos is going on all around it. But despite this chaos, that horse is under control of the rider on its back. It's got the bit in its mouth, and it, 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 it stands there waiting for its rider's command. I, I don't want to push the analogy too far, but in, in the midst of our suffering, as we're called to faithfulness, I hope that we become increasingly controlled by the Spirit, that the Spirit is filling us rather than us responding out of retaliation and anger and wrath against those who have wronged us, against the hardships that we face on a daily basis. I pray that the Spirit would be filling us, controlling us, that when the Gentiles look at us, they, that we would live honorably among them so they might glorify Christ. That's my hope and my, my prayer for us today that we would be controlled like that black stallion in the midst of chaos on the battlefield, 
that the Spirit would be guiding us. Most often, I, I don't see uh, a whole lot of people who say, I'm gonna go take revenge on, on this person who sinned against me, but I, I do see a lot of anger. I see a lot of anger, I see a lot of self-protection. I would encourage you that if your response to being sinned against is, is first uh, anger and self-protection, that be wary of that. Ask yourself, is this sin or is this righteous anger? I haven't seen a whole lot of righteous anger in my life. The third point is in the second half of verse 23. Jesus continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. This is the third point, that in the midst of suffering, entrust yourself to God. Entrust yourself to God. So let's go back to the Sanhedrin. I'm thinking about Jesus Christ, the judge of the living and the dead, is sitting before this kangaroo court who they can't even get two witnesses to lie and, and lie and tell the same story about him. Yet Jesus entrusts that God will make this right. God will right these wrongs. I think of Christ in Gethsemane right before he's arrested. He's praying with some of the disciples and he asks God, if it's possible, may this cup pass from me. If there's any other way, please don't make me suffer in this way. But every time he prays that, three times in the garden, he says, may your will be done. May your will be done. We can trust that the God of the universe that he's good. We can trust him even when, when things are hard, even in the midst of injustice. Christ trusts God. Biblical counseling isn't simply about like horizontal change. It's not simply, um, here's five ways to communicate better with your spouse, uh, five ways to be less anxious. It's, it's not just horizontal, but there's a vertical action here that's, that's crucial. It's an essential element of biblical counseling. If we are engaging and interacting with God in the midst of our suffering, in the midst of hardship, we're missing something that's crucial. I would encourage you to, to continue to trust in God in the midst of hardship. That's not going to be an easy battle. It is going to be a battle. Often when I talk to Tom, he says we're fighting for faith. It's a daily fight, a daily struggle, a daily battle to fight for faith continue doing that. Continue entrusting yourself to God. As we, we learn to walk like Jesus, as we learn to be faithful in the midst of suffering, we're becoming more like Christ. We're doing biblical counseling in those times. One more thing that I want to point out before we move to the catalyst. Christ's hope is in the judge who, the, in, in the God who judges justly. If you've been here for the past six weeks, you've heard that, that God's justice is a good thing and we're thankful for that. It's a good thing that God will bring justice to this world, that those people who have sinned against you, they will be held accountable before God. And when we stand before him, we say it's, it's by the blood of Christ that I am saved. By the blood of Christ I am saved. Justice is coming, not just for those who have sinned against us, but justice is coming. He's going to right all the wrongs of, of sin and death. In Revelation 21, Jesus uh, is going to wipe away every tear from our eyes, and sin and death will be no more. That's a promise to us. That's what is coming, and we look expectantly to that day. 
we expectantly look forward to the day that God will make all things right. We can trust him to do that. My last point is in verses 24 and 25, and this is the catalyst. What is the catalyst that makes this happen? Peter doesn't just leave us with simply, here's a, a list of do's and don'ts, but he also, he also gives us the catalyst, the thing that makes this possible. Let me read verses 24 and 25 for us. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. For you are straying like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your soul. In the midst of suffering, Jesus Christ, the gospel, makes our obedience possible. Because of Christ's death in our place, verse 24 says, we might die to sin and live to righteousness. It's because of the gospel that this is even possible for us. Jesus makes, he gives us the ability to respond in, in faithfulness to our suffering. Jesus gives us the motivation. And, and sometimes I think, I think we, we just want those five, that list of five ways to communicate better with your spouse. I, I can do those. And we forget that Jesus Christ is still involved in this battle. You are not alone as you are called to pursue faithfulness in the midst of hardship and suffering. Jesus Christ, the gospel, enables that. and He walks with us as we continue to struggle and strive for faithfulness and righteous endurance in the midst of suffering. In scripture, the indicatives and the imperatives, they often go together like this. There, there are imperative commands, go do this, and they're often paired to indicative declarative statements. This is who you are. These things are often paired together. So in this context, Peter says, live like this, suffer like Jesus, and here's why you can do it. Here are indicative, declarative statements about who you are in Christ. The, the bigger context, that main idea in verses 11 and 12, that, that we're called to live honorably among the Gentiles so that they may glorify Christ in the day of visitation, even that, is follow, it's preceded by verses 9 and 10, that you are a royal priesthood, a holy nation. You're a people for God's own possession. You have been made new, therefore live like this. Biblical counseling and the word of God, they don't simply give us a, a, a list of to-dos, but God has, has given us the indicatives that make it possible. He reminds us who we are. Christ is the catalyst that makes our obedience possible. He should be motivating and encouraging us to continue pursuing righteousness. As I've shared my notes and, and kind of asked for feedback from a couple people in the church, um, I've been honored to walk alongside uh, them for about a year. We've been here for a little over a year. And I've been encouraged by seeing them walk faithfully like Peter's describing. These older brothers and sisters have, have given me an example pointing me to Christ as they're in the midst of their suffering. As I shared my notes with them, I heard kind of two responses um, pretty consistently. The first response was that when I look at the cross, when I look at the gospel in verses 24 and 25, it makes my suffering, it puts it in its place. The suffering that I'm enduring right now is so much smaller than the suffering that Christ endured on that cross for me. And even though uh, your suffering, it, it might look like a, a smaller deal, Jesus still cares about that. 
God still encourages us to speak to him, to call out to him like the psalmists do. God cares about the hardships, the struggles that we have, whether they're, they're, they're big potatoes or small potatoes, so much so that in the end when Christ returns, he will wipe away those tears. There will be no more sin and death and suffering. He's going to make that right. We wait and long for that justice. The other thing that I heard uh, several times from these brothers and sisters in Christ, we can do this. We can suffer like Christ, not because I'm going to white knuckle it a little bit more now, not because I'm, I'm super disciplined and I'm, I'm, gonna, I'm really going to get after it today, but we can suffer like Christ because he did so first. Christ suffered and died in our place so that we might live. Jesus Christ secures our victory. Because of Christ, we can do this. For those of you who are uh, younger in the church and, and really anyone who's not the oldest person in the church, I would encourage you to do this. Uh, I would encourage you to, to get together with another younger couple and take an older couple, an older individual, out to lunch. Maybe not today, but, but sometime this month. Ask them about their experience as they've, they've tried to faithfully walk with God in the midst of their suffering. Their testimonies, their examples point us to Jesus Christ, and I'm so thankful for the body. We need one another, and we aren't suffering alone. If, if you're struggling and suffering today, I encourage you to speak with someone. Speak with that older person. Talk to them about your struggles, and listen to the encouragement, the the exhortation that they may have for you. Learn from their wisdom and their years of walking by faith. I guarantee you that will be a blessing. Brothers and sisters, I hope that you have been encouraged by the approval of God, by, by the Christ who died in our place so that we might live to righteousness. We can do this together. We can suffer like Christ. Therefore, hear this exhortation from Peter Peter calls us to suffer faithfully even in the midst of hardships, trials, injustice. Peter gives us the characteristics. He, rem- he shows us how we're called to suffer. He says, suffer like Jesus. Uh, one more takeaway that I'll have for you in your care groups next weekend, I would encourage you to look at other passages that describe Christ suffering faithfully. There are so many other texts that we could look to. Even Jesus Christ weeping before the grave of Lazarus is instructive to us. I would encourage you to look at other passages together and discuss how does Christ show us that we can suffer well? What does that look like? In our passage today, it's, it's purity of speech. It's meekness, not retaliation, and it's entrusting yourself to God. Finally, I want to remind you that the catalyst that makes all this possible is the gospel. Christ died in our place so that we might live. Therefore, what we're doing this morning, biblical exposition, which fuels biblical counseling, it teaches us how are we to live like Christ? What does it look like to become more like him? In this case, it's teaching us how are we sinners supposed to suffer like saints?